Well, our passage tonight is in Judges chapter 19. We'll be reading the entire chapter, beginning in, uh, on, uh, begin, you can find it on page 219 uh, in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she, uh, went, uh, to, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there uh, some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. On the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and as he prepared to go, uh, but, the girl fa- uh, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. And so they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jibis, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites, and spend the night in it. And the master said to him, We will not turn aside to a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? Where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem to Judah, to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I am going. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. And so he brought him into this house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who, will come, who came into your house that we may know him. And the master, the, the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, 
Do not act so wickedly, since this man is, has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door at the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the door of the house and went out, went out to go his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands upon the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. That's a hard text. In 2020, there was a Netflix documentary that got a lot of attention called Tiger King. And uh, I have not watched it, so I'm not recommending it. Uh, um, and so I think it's got a very high maturity rating, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, but it follows the rivalry between two large uh, cats, think tiger, uh, collectors and sellers. Um, but in, in learning details about this documentary, uh, it, which does end with someone being arrested, uh, uh, trying to hire someone to kill the other person. <laughs> and, um, the, you know, one thing becomes very clear by the end of the documentary. There are no heroes to root for. Everyone in that documentary is terrible. Everyone is awful. There is nobody. If you start rooting for someone, you're going to be bitterly disappointed by the end. That's what it feels like reading the end of the book of Judges. There are no heroes. There's nobody to root for. There's someone to feel sorry for in this story. But, it, but everyone else is grotesquely awful. And we're supposed to feel the grotesque, sickening feeling in our stomach as we read that text. If that's what you feel when you hear that text, then you were paying attention and you read it rightly. Something is deeply, disturbingly wrong in Israel. But why does the author write this chapter? Why does this have to be in the Bible? Well, the author here is writing to show the people of God just how terrible the depravity of man can be without the true king. And that's still true today. If we depart from our true king individually or as the church, either the church here at Bailey or even as our denomination as a whole, uh, if we abandon God's word, if we abandon our obedience to the word of God, true to the gospel, then what should we expect if we are simply going about doing what is right in our own eyes or the eyes of society or the eyes of politicians, whatever it may be? The author shows us here the depths of, of unrestrained depravity and what can, it can do not only to a woman, but what it can do to a people. This text is actually part of a three-chapter unit. This is the first chapter. 
uh, describing the horror of Gibeah. Uh, Next chapter will be the judgment that falls, not only on Gibeah, but the entire tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and then, uh, ch- and then the final chapter will be essentially responding to that judgment that fell on them. Uh, this is the darkest chapter in the book of Judges, uh, as and as such, it is essentially a case study of human depravity, human depravity that is revealed oddly enough through the window, the lens of hospitality, but but human depravity that is only answered through true kingship. So we're going to look at those two things tonight. First, how human depravity is revealed through various types of hospitality. And then also how human depravity is only answered in true kingship. You've got an outline on the back of your bulletin there uh, that you can follow along. Uh, and so uh, one, now one author summarized this text uh, as simply observing four variations of hospitality. Excessive, deficient protective and perverted hospitality. And so we'll, you can kind of walk through the text in that way. And so we see in verses 1 through 9 uh, the excessive hospitality of the, uh, the, the woman's father. Uh, we are introduced uh, once again to a Levite. We were following a Levite around uh, before who was in the house of Micah. This is a different Levite. But notice that both sections in the end of the book of Judges focus on Levites, the priest class, the priestly class of the people of God, so, we're, so that there is a point to be made there. We'll come back to it later. Um, but we're introduced to a Levite who took to himself a concubine. Now, a concubine was essentially, a, it, she, it, was a, it was a kind of wife. It was a wife usually that was maybe, uh, didn't have a dowry uh, that could be paid. Uh, and, so, uh, and so she came in and she would, didn't have all the full rights uh, that a full wife would have. Uh, and but even so, concubines were still had basic rights of protection uh, that was supposed to come from their husband. But we're told that she leaves her husband and goes back to her father. Now the Hebrew word there, you can see in the ESV, they have a little text, little little, little manuscript note um, there at the bottom that says uh, she was unfaithful to him, or says uh, she was angry with him. And that's because uh, the Hebrew word there is is very confusing because the Hebrew word there can either mean to be angry or to cheat on your spouse, which seems a very wide range for a word. <laughs> and so and so they're kind of like, oh, well, which one was it? Uh, you know, because given the morality of the time of the judges, we wouldn't be surprised if she was uh, maritally unfaithful to him. Uh, but also, given his conduct in the chapter, we wouldn't be surprised if she couldn't stand him and she was trying to get away from him. But it's not really sure. Interestingly enough, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, translates this Hebrew word as anger, that she was angry with him and that she left him because she was furious with him and despised him. At any rate, she goes back to her father at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for about four months when her husband came back to speak softly to her, to woo her back and to come back with him. She wants, he wants to reconcile, and her father, for his part, is overjoyed, likely because the, the shame of the separation is now being resolved, and now, they can, now his honor is being restored, and and because the, his daughter and her husband are now coming together. And so he lavishes hospitality uh, almost in a celebration here uh, and going way beyond uh, what's necessary, uh, pressing the Levite to stay day after day to the point where it almost becomes comical in, in how it's described. 
and uh, unfortunately, it was uh, it was actually the lavishness and and um, uh, of this hospitality that set up the timing of uh, wherein what took place took place. Uh, because little did the man, uh, this man was identified only as the girl's father. Six times he is identified as her father, or the girl's father. Never given a name, but the girl's father. Little did he know that his hospitality would set up the timing uh, at, at the end of which, uh, within a day, his daughter would be dead. And so we see this excessive hospitality in verses 1 through 9. Then we move into uh, the deficient hospitality found in the town of Gibeah in verses 10 through 15. And uh, now we all know what it's like to get uh, started on a late trip. I get rather grumpy uh, when if we're getting a late start on a trip of return. Everything irritates me until I finally have to repent and let things go and just kind of let go. It's like, all right. And so, um, uh, and, uh, but, but, you know, they do get a late start and they, uh, and, and so they don't make it that far. Now where they're going. So they're kind of in, um, they're kind of at the center of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and so they're heading up north and it's about 30 miles along the roads over to Shiloh. And they're heading, they're heading north. And, and so they're, Heading up, uh, and Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the house of the Lord was that he said they're heading to, assuming he's telling the truth. And so they're heading that direction. And along the way, they pass by Jebus or, or Jerusalem, and they pass by Gibeah. Those are all, all, all along the way there. Gibeah is just a few miles north of Jerusalem. It's called Jebus at that time because it was still occupied by the Jebusites um, at the time. It had not been taken for Israel. It's not until David's time, many years later, that uh, Jebus becomes uh, Jerusalem and the city of the capital city of Israel. Uh, ironically, the, the Levite balks at the idea of staying at a non-Israelite town. Uh, no, 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 he says. We, we're we're going to go stay in a proper Israelite city where they'll treat us rightly just a few miles north at Gibeon. Gibeah would uh, later become the birthplace of King Saul in his capital city while he reigned in Israel. The twist, of course, here is that the, many of, the men of Gibeah are actually worse than the average pagan that you would find in the, in the Canaanite cities. And so they arrive at Gibeah, and there's no room at the end because inns don't exist in Gibeah. Uh, hospitality, though, was a sacred custom. We think of hospitality as kind of a bonus extra. But uh, hospitality in those days was a sacred custom because your life depended on it. And so it was the, the honor of a town uh, was indicated by their level of hospitality. It spoke to the character of the city, how they treated those who traveled through because, and even the law of God required the care of sojourners and travelers who were just passing through because they are particularly vulnerable to attack. It wasn't a cheap custom. Um, because uh, you have people stay with you, and you got to feed them. You got to feed their animals. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, imagine if somebody just came knocking on your door and said, "Hey, will you give us shelter for the night? Uh, you know, you can fuel up the car, and uh, we haven't eaten. So if you give us some food, and you're kind of like, this is adding up here, buddy. You know, I didn't have this in my food budget. Well, well, this is the ancient world. This was expected. But he, but also we find out that they had brought all their own supplies. So they're saying, look, we're not asking for. For, 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 you know, uh, for the Crown Plaza here. We just want a roof over our head. That, that's all we're looking for for the night. We can feed ourselves. We can feed our donkeys. We can take care of everything. 
Just give us a place to stay. But there was no place to stay, which is the shame of Gibeah. We also are told that uh, Gibeah, in case we didn't know, belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Twice we are told this to highlight the scandal about what occurs. Uh, And certainly the inhospitality that is displayed in Gibeah is a mere foreshadowing of uh, of the evil that is to be revealed. Uh, The deficient hospitality is what one scholar called a sign of the social malignancy at work in Gibeah. Indeed, even uh, we could make a general principle out of here, we could draw a general principle from this in that it speaks to the character, not merely of a town, but of a church, of God's people, and you could say maybe any group of people, but especially God's people, for how they treat the vulnerable in their midst. How do they treat the weak? How, do the church, how does the church care for their widows and their orphans? You know, it, how, how do they care for them? It speaks to the character of the people of God and how they care for the helpless. But we move from the division hospitality of Gibeah to the protective hospitality of the old man in verses 16 to 21. Now finally, someone in Gibeah comes along and offers hospitality, and he is thoroughly gracious as a host, providing for all their needs. But we, of course, find out that the one man in Gibeah who provides the hospitality is not from Gibeah. He's not a local. He's from the hill country of Ephraim. He's from an entirely different tribe. He is sojourning there. Now, but the man does provide that hospitality. He cares for all their needs. Uh, and, uh, and, but he also seems to know more than he's telling as he implores them not to spend the night in the square. Uh, now, the town square deal was basically if nobody offered you uh, a place to stay, then the last place of refuge was the center of town. Uh, but obviously the old man knows the kind of evil and wickedness that is afoot in Gibeah and that the, that the town square is probably the last place you want to be at night. And so we have here a Levite from Ephraim who went and chased down his concubine wife who had left him, who find themselves in Gibeah in Benjamin, tribe of Israel, being cared for by a man from Ephraim. His hospitality is not lacking. The author records, he feeds the donkeys, he washes his guests' feet, he feeds them well. But we will see the old man's hospitality fail soon enough. Because this brings us to the hardest part of the chapter, which is verse 22 to, 20, uh, verse 22 to 30, and the perverted hospitality of Gibeah. While they're eating a group of men from Gibeah, that we're told worthless, lawless, wicked men is what that word means, come by, and, and it says they're beating on the door, but that doesn't even do it quite justice. Essentially, they're breaking down the door, is what they're doing. They're slamming themselves into the door to break it down. Uh, and, the, and, and they're demanding to have the old man's guest, specifically the Levite, brought out so they can sexually assault him. The old man comes out, and he tells them not to do this evil thing, and that is well enough. But then... Inexplicably, especially to us, the, the audience reading the, reading the pages, he offers up his own daughter and the Levite's concubine to satisfy the depraved lusts of the men. 
And this is one of those times where we must remember that just because someone does something in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves of it. That this is a good thing or a normal practice. What we see here, as as noted by several scholars, is not Jewish or Christian values on display that sacrifice the safety of women, women who were bound by duty to be protected and cared for for the safety of the male guests. What is being protected here in a very pagan way is the honor of the old man who doesn't want the dishonor of of violating the, the, the laws of basically the ancient customs of hospitality. Before any other decisions could be made, though, what has to be one of the most cowardly acts recorded in all of Scripture, enough to make one's blood boil, this Levite, this man of God, shoves his concubine out into the depraved and wicked crowd so that they may be satisfied and leave him alone. In the crowd of evil men who act like animals, We see the reality of what Matthew Henry wrote when he wrote about this text, that unbridled lust will eventually sear the conscience of a person, taking them to inhuman places and doing inhuman actions. Unbridled lust will eventually sear the conscience of a person. In this moment, everyone, not just the men, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. The old man, by sinfully offering the vulnerable to be violated and killed to save, to save him uh, his honor. The Levite, by acting in pure self-preservation and absolute denial of his calling as a husband and certainly as a Levite. And even just as a human being. The men, for their absolutely wicked, grotesque and sickening actions, which themselves are worthy of death. Death which they will receive in the next chapter. But everyone is doing as they see fit. And when everyone does as they see fit, it is the vulnerable and the helpless who pay the price. Yet just as we found out more information about the Levite in our previous chapter, where we found out at the end of the whole story of Micah and the Levite, found out the Levite was Moses' grandson, the idolater, that idolater, that, uh, that idolatrous Levite. We learn more about the Levite here, about his character. Because if, 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 if what he did at the, at the beginning, the night before, didn't make you absolutely furious at this guy, just wait till what he does in the morning. Because we find out that not only did he do that, not only did he abandon his wife out that night into the, into the hands of those evil men. He went to sleep. He went to bed and got a good night's rest. And he woke up in the morning, got ready, perhaps had a, you know, had a little spot of breakfast to get ready for the trip, walked out the door and, oh, I almost forgot you were there, wife. Because there she was, laying at the foot of the door. Almost forgot about. Does he attend to her? Does he care for her? Does he do anything for her? No, he just commands her to get up and get ready because it's time to leave. It's taking her so long. But she doesn't answer because she's dead. She dies with her hands on the threshold of the door. The threshold of the door is significant. 
because she dies reaching for the protection that it, it signifies. She dies reaching for the protection of her husband, for the security of her host. But all she grasped was death. And the Levite is fully revealed as a coward, as callous, and absolutely evil. But believe it or not, he's just getting started. Wait till you hear next week how he explains what happened. He went home, took his dead wife, and subjected her to one final indignity. Rather than giving her a decent burial and laying her to rest, he cut up her body and sent it throughout the, the land of Israel, just like Saul would do later with oxen. And the response of the people was right. In effect, what they, what they mean there when they say what they say there is, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in Israel since the day we came out of Egypt. They say since the exodus, nothing like this has ever been done. Well, he shows us here, the author does, through this story, without any comment, he shows us effectively the depths of unrestrained depravity in humanity. But he also is arguing that the, that the human depravity is answered only through true kingship. Because don't overlook verse 1 of the story. There was no king in Israel, he says. And then he tells you, tells you the story. This is, I believe, the third time it has been said there was no king in Israel. And without the true king, God's people, at least in part, will become like Sodom. The passage here has direct parallels with Genesis 19, with Sodom and Gomorrah. There are clear indications, even in how the author words what is said, uh, that he is patterning his writing to draw a clear parallel between the men of Gibeah, the, the, the men of Israel, and the men of Sodom. Only here, there are no angels to prevent the men from acting on their depraved desires. They do as they please. You know, when we, when we colonized America, um, you know, it, we, we would come and we were, we were not very original with our naming of things. Because, like, how did New York get its name, right? There was a British city called York, and they were going there and they're like, now we're here. Well, this is, we're going to call this York too. But it's a new one, so we're going to call it New York. You're like, that's a good idea. Very great. Okay? Naming committee was not original. Gideon may as well change his name to New Sodom. New Gomorrah. Because that is what this incident reveals. It reveals that Israel has abandoned God's word and sin and has taken root on a societal level, leading to the horror of this moment. But it also reveals the corruption of the priesthood Something which will, will corrupt the justice that will also follow in the next chapter. 
And here we just see everything is just working wrong. It's just going the wrong way. What happened in Gibeah shows us that if the people of God will not abide by God's word, if its, if it's spiritual leaders will not hold to the word of God, then the best we can hope for is that perhaps the wickedness of men will shock the consciences of God's people into action. It's the best you can hope for. And this stresses how important it is that we hold to the word of God in the scriptures. That we, that, we, that we have elders who are bound to that word and will not compromise it. We exist as a church because of the good word of the gospel. Indeed, because of the word who is made flesh Jesus Christ himself. And in that word, we are corrected. We are directed. We are crafted. We are formed. We are convicted. We are reformed. We are not merely affirmed. It is crucial to have ministers who are trained in and committed to expounding the word of God, even the passages we don't want to read and we'd rather skip over. Thank you very much. Why? Because not only are there passages in the Bible we'd like to avoid, but there are things in our own lives, in the life of the church, that we'd rather not talk about. That we'd rather not deal with. That we would say, I wish this didn't exist. I wish we didn't have to deal with this. But we do. Before becoming a pastor, I interned at a church for two and a half years. And there are wonderful Christian people at that church, still at that church. There are wonderful Christian people then who have gone to be with the Lord. It was was great. It was a great internship. But halfway through my internship there, the church imploded. We lost three ruling elders within a few months. One of them is is excommunicated and 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 is a registered sex offender for abusing his own son. Then the pastor was forced out and resigned. And then a third of the church left. It was a church in a small town, and our reputation was just in tatters. I know what it means to be at a church and to not want to face things and to want to run away from them. I don't like confrontation. I don't like it. I'd rather avoid it. But I've seen what happens when you don't. And we don't hold to those convictions. And I just remember one woman in the church, she was the lady who cleaned the church, she was the older lady in the church, and she, she's... Um, and I was right, I lived in the manse that was behind the church. <laughs> so I was there, and she, she, and she was just bewildered. Didn't know what to do. And, because I mean, I just, I've seen every, I saw everything. I saw how ugly and nasty people can be in church. People who are professing Christians, and how mean they can be. I've seen people who are just bewildered, going like, I don't know what's going on. And that's what she was like. She was like, I don't know, what are we going to do? In turn, <laughs> what are we going to do? Money, my pastor, money, my intern. And I just said, honestly, it can't get much worse than this. And then I proceeded to go get licensed for the Presbytery and to hold out the hope of the gospel. Because I didn't have hope in my leadership or my ability. I wasn't the savior of the church, but I, but I know who he is. So I could hold out the gospel of truth. Because the only answer to the depravity of man is not recommitted goodness of men. It is Christ, the suffering king. 
in this story that is filled with all manner of depraved characters. It is easy to lose sight of the victim, the concubine, the wife of the Levi. And we cannot do adequate justice to describe the unspeakable, the unspeakable brutality that she experienced. But we can say that we have a Savior who does know intimately and personally the brutality of men. Who knows the depravity of men. He knows what it means to not receive hospitality. He is the son of man who had no place to lay his head. He knows the callousness and the cruelty of men who only look out for themselves and their own interests. He knows the corruption of religious leaders. The violence and the mockery that they subjected subjected him to. The sadistic torture that the Romans who flogged and bloodied him and mocked him and crucified him in an agonizing death. He knows it. And he overcame it by his resurrection. Jesus is the safe Savior for the Christians, especially for those Christians whom even the church has failed to protect. He is able to identify with the abused and the wounded, He is able to bring healing and restoration. And so this means that for church leaders, we must seek to be men of the word who live by it through our words, our thoughts, and our actions, growing more and more daily, setting an example for the people of Christ, for the flock of God that has been trusted to our care. Because we look as elders to Christ, who is the king and the head of the church, and to whom we will give an account for our ministry. As the church, we must be committed to God's word. And ask ourselves how we care for those who are vulnerable in our midst. To make sure we care for them well. As wounded sinners, we must come to terms with the ways that we have been sinned against. And the ways that we have sinned against others. But we must always direct our eyes to the cross. And to the empty tomb of Jesus. Applying the healing balm of grace to our wounds and the wounds of others. That we may bring forth its praise. Again, human depravity cannot be solved by human recommitment to be good. Or a blind faith in the the enduring goodness of men. It is true that the fall did not make men as evil as they possibly could be at all times and in all places. But that's not a place to put your hope that men aren't as bad as they could be. The answer is that we need a king. And not just any king. We need King Jesus. The one who suffered and died. The man of sorrows and suffering who was pierced for our transgressions who was crushed for our iniquities, the one upon whom our chastisement fell, and who by his wounds has brought us healing and love and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the darkest of places, your light shines. That in the darkest evils of this world, You will bring your justice and you will bring your mercy. Father, we trust in you, our great God and our great King. 
You are wonderful and glorious. And we give you all the praise and honor for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ, who identifies with our suffering and our sorrows, as great or as small as they may be, who calls us and strengthens us to faithfulness in accordance with your word, the obedience that proceeds from faith. So, Father, we pray that we would not abandon your word, but we would be faithful to it. That we would not become like the men of Gibeah uh, or, like, or like the Levite or like the old man from Ephraim. But that we would honor you. That we would do justice. That we would love mercy. And that we would walk humbly with our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.